Well, take your Bibles once again and let's open to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, I have lost track of how many sermons we have done in Psalm 23. I believe this is number eight or nine, something like that. Uh, All I know is that every time I open this text and I begin to read and I begin to meditate, the Lord continues to give me something encouraging and fresh that I needed, and I am then just communicating that to you. Uh, This morning we do come to a wonderful passage of scripture in verse five, and I can't wait to get there. So open your Bibles, hold them, and we'll get there in just a moment. Over the past five or six years, one of the most helpful little word pictures to me, little scenes in the Old Testament, is this little episode in 1 Kings chapter 19 where the Lord feeds the prophet Elijah. I can't even tell you how many times throughout the last few years I have gone back and read this moment and found it to be a constant source of refreshment and encouragement to me. Now, if you grew up in church, you'll remember the context of the story. It's one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. Uh, Queen Jezebel had brought in Baal and had called all of the people to worship Baal. There were very few people who were still worshiping the Lord, and there were 450 prophets of Baal present. When Elijah came and said, all right, let's gather all the people together, and let's just show once and for all who is in fact God. Elijah, a man passionate for the name, the reputation, the glory of the Lord, wanted to be very clear that Baal did not even exist, and it was useless to give your life to worship him. Here's what he did. He said, prophets of Baal, let's have a little show here. I want you to prepare an altar, and I'm gonna prepare an altar, and then we're both gonna pray. You're gonna pray to your God, I'm gonna pray to my God, and the God who answers by fire, we will know that that is God. So the God who sends fire from heaven in order to consume the altar, that's God. So they agreed to it. The prophets of Baal then gather together, they put their altar together, they get everything prepared, and from morning to night, they pray to their God, they plead to their God. Now, Elijah knows this is not gonna work because their God does not exist. He's, of course, not hearing their prayer because he's not real. But they pray, and then they begin to cut themselves and do all of these things to try to get the attention from their God And then Elijah starts to mock them, which is a wonderful part of the story. He says, well, maybe your God has gone on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's just not hearing you right now. And all the way till late in the evening, they begin to plead with their God and nothing happens. Then it's Elijah's turn. But Elijah, just to make a point, gets 12 buckets of water, puts a trench around his altar, and fills the altar with water, making it impossible for it to catch on fire. No way with 12 buckets of water this altar could ever catch on fire. And then in front of everyone, he just prays. He says, Lord, I I long for these people to see that you alone are God. So would you display your glory right now? Would you send your fire from heaven, a symbol of your presence? God, come and descend upon us. And in that moment, fire fell from heaven and completely consumed the altar that was built and licked up all of the water so that it was completely dry. At that moment, the people began to worship the Lord. Elijah only had one more thing to do. It tells us at the end of 1 Kings 18, he seized the 450 prophets of Baal, he took them outside of the city, and he slaughtered them. In other words, we are going to have one God, and it is the Lord. Now, that story makes the next story so surprising. 
Because in the next episode, the very next chapter, Elijah gets word that Queen Jezebel is going to kill him. Queen Jezebel sends a message to Elijah saying, may it be done to me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you and taken your life. Well, who cares? Elijah just slaughtered 450 prophets of Baal. He just called fire down from heaven. He knows God's hearing his prayer. He knows God is real. He knows that God is powerful. He knows that he is able to call down the fire of heaven. Who cares about a demonic Jezebel threatening him? He has the protection of the Lord. If there's ever a time he knows this, he would know it right now. But his response is really surprising. It tells us in 1 Kings 19 that he's terrified. And he gets up and he runs for his life. He gets to the edge of the wilderness and he has a servant with him. He tells his servant to stay there. Then Elijah goes one day further into the wilderness where he sits under a tree and he prays. He says this, it is enough, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. I've had it, I'm done, it's enough, I can't do it anymore. Just take my life. I don't even want to live anymore. I'm I'm no good. I'm no better than my father's. And here's this mighty prophet of God that just called fire down from heaven in one of the most incredible pictures in all of the Old Testament. And we see him scared, weak, tired, frail, and deeply insecure. Now, what I love is the way in which the Lord responds to this. So here is Elijah in despair, wishing he wasn't even alive anymore, feeling terrible about himself. He falls asleep and an angel of the Lord is sent to wake him up. The angel wakes him up and doesn't say what you would think he would say, which is Elijah, you dummy, what's going on here? Don't you know what you just did? Don't you know who you are? Haven't you experienced the power of God? The angel wakes him up and says, hey, have something to eat. And Elijah turns, and there's a hot stone with a hot loaf of bread and some clean water. And then Elijah goes back to sleep. The angel of the Lord wakes him up again, and you know what's there? A hot stone with a hot loaf of bread and some water. And in that moment, when Elijah was in the depths of despair, feeling terrible about God and about himself, not even wanting to live, the Lord just wakes him up and gives him something to eat. Now, what I love so much about that story is that what it tells us about ourselves and what it tells us about God. What it tells us about ourselves is, like Elijah, on our best day, our greatest day, our day of greatest victory, we're still nothing but weak, scared, deeply insecure human beings. On our best day. On our best day, it just takes one thing for us to snap back into our own despair and depth of insecurity. What it tells us about the Lord is that he knows that. He knows that about us. And in those moments, he knows exactly how to love us and care for us and minister to us. Every time I think about that meal that the Lord prepared for Elijah, it deeply encourages me. I get emotional when I think about that meal, when I think about the way in which the Lord prepared a meal for, Joseph, for Elijah and think about the way in which he continues to do that for me and for you. I'm overwhelmed by just the love of our God. And that's just like the picture we get 
in Psalm 23. Look with me at the text. I wanna read Psalm 23, verses one through five. Here's what it says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Here's the key verse. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what Psalm 23 is about. The way in which God leads us in the path of righteousness. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And here's our verse for today. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, verse five might seem a bit odd if you've been following with us in this story of Psalm 23. Because Psalm 23 uses the metaphor of a shepherd and a sheep. Here's David later in his life, reflecting on what it looks like to walk with the Lord, giving us a picture of what this looks like and equipping us for the journey, is talking about the Lord in terms of a shepherd and us in terms of sheep. And then all of a sudden we come to verse five where it says, you prepare a table before me and we wonder, do sheep eat at a table? I mean, this this seems odd. I've never thought about sheep having a table prepared before them in the wilderness so that they might sit and feast while the shepherd prepares the meal for them and sets it on a table. Well, the reason that sounds strange is because that is strange. Sheep don't eat at a table, at least as far as I know and all of my sheep experience, which is vast, as you could imagine. No, what David does here is he he switches metaphors. Now, every metaphor kind of has a limit. You can only take a metaphor so far, and we've learned so much from the metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd, and I believe that even follows through a little bit maybe in the next verse But right here, David has something more he wants us to understand about what it looks like to walk with the Lord. And it doesn't fit exactly into the metaphor of a shepherd and a sheep. So David switches from showing us the Lord as a good shepherd to now showing us the Lord as a good host. A host who prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemy, who anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. Now, Psalm 23.5 is painting a picture for us of a lavish dinner that's been prepared. And there are six key words in this verse that all help us to understand the picture that we need to see here in order for this to make sense to us and I believe be life-changing for us. Now, if you have a copy of God's word, which I hope you do, and you mark in your Bibles, circle six words. You, table, Me, enemies, oil, and cup. You, table, me, enemies, oil, and cup. Those are the six words that explain to us the picture of what's going on here. And I wanna look at those one by one, not in the order that they're given here, uh, but I want us to see every one of them. The first one is this. Let's think about the table. Let's think about the table. Now, the point here is not really about a table. It's about what's on the table. He's not making a point that the Lord built a table. It's the point that the Lord has prepared a feast. To say there is a table that has been prepared means that there is a feast that's been prepared. The table has been prepared, meaning everything is on it for us to eat. Now, in Middle Eastern culture, if you wanted to increase your reputation, 
and you wanted to display your wealth, you did so with feasts. Now, in American culture, if you want to increase your reputation and display your wealth, you put your house way back in the woods, you put a large fence around it and a gate so that no one can come in or see it. The Middle Eastern culture was the opposite of that. If you wanted to increase your reputation, if you wanted people talking about you, if you wanted to show people the kind of person that you are, and you wanted to display the amount of wealth that you had, then you opened up your home for lavish feasts. And the lavish feast not only showed your generosity, but your wealth, and it showed the kind of person that you are. So it was very common then and even today in Middle Eastern culture to have large feasts and host people and to bring them in in order to display the kind of person, generosity, and the kind of wealth that you have. So that's, that's the picture here. It's, it's the picture of a lavish feast that has been prepared, a table that is filled with abundance. There is on this table more than enough. When I think about this, I, I think about the table at Thanksgiving or the table at Christmas or the table at Easter. I don't know about you, but I like to take a picture of the table on those occasions before anyone is seated at it. Now, I also want a picture when everyone's seated at it. I love all the people there. I'm not saying that. I just, I'm just saying there's something about looking at that table. You walk into the dining room, and the plates are there that you only use three times a year. The silverware is there you never use. There's those cups, those glasses that you got for your wedding that you use three times a year. There's napkins and napkin rings, and there's some decorations. And amidst all of that, there's lots of casseroles and dishes and meats all of that stuff is there. And before anyone gets to the table, I always love to just take a picture of the table because there is something incredibly beautiful about a table that has been prepared that is filled with food because that table is communicating not only the love of the one who's prepared it, but it's almost an invitation. It's calling you saying, hey, pretty soon you're gonna be able to sit there. It's communicating, hey, this is a meal that we're gonna take our time with. This is a meal where we're gonna sit and rest and relax. We're not gonna grab a piece of meat and a roll and head out the door. No, the table itself communicates that we're about to sit there and enjoy the meal. So there is a table that has been prepared. But not only is there a table, there's also a host. It says in verse five, you prepare a table. Now, who is the you? Well, the you is, is the Lord. Now, this is where we break from culture. Something very surprising happens here. I can give you a hundred examples throughout scripture where a host invites people to a dinner party. But this is the only example I can give you where the host who invites you, who owns the house, who owns the table, who's trying to display his wealth is also the one who prepares the meal. This is unheard of. So in Genesis 18, a stranger, an angel comes to Abraham and Abraham says to Sarah, go prepare a feast, kill the fatted calf. Let's give this man a meal. We talked about it last year in Luke 15. The prodigal comes home. Well, the father who lavishes his love on the son says to all of his servants, go, let's prepare a meal. Let's kill the fatted calf. You never find a time in which the host himself is the one who prepares the meal. But this is different. It says not only is the host the one who is having the meal, not only is he the one inviting you to the meal, he is also the one preparing the meal. He is the one cooking the meal. 
He is the one serving the meal. He is at the same time the host who has invited you in and the waiter who's got a towel around his arm standing there waiting to serve you. He is the one who himself has made the food, who himself brings it to your table, who stands there to make sure that every need you have is met. In a very unusual way, it says that the Lord is the one who is hosting, inviting, preparing, and serving. He is not only the one who invites you to the table, he is the host and the one preparing the food. So we have the table, we have the host, and then we have you. You prepare a table before me. So I'm referring when I say you to you are the me in this passage. So if I were to come home on just a regular weeknight and I were to walk into the kitchen and immediately when I walk into the house, I smell the smell of incredible food. And then I walk into the dining room and I see the table there is prepared like on Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas. The first question I'm gonna ask my wife is this, who's coming over? Now I wanna be clear here, it's not because Every night, I don't come home to a feast like that. Of course I do. I mean, that, that's a given, right? It's not, it's not that I would be surprised that the table is set like Thanksgiving. Every day is like that at my house. I'm just, I'm just saying that if I came home and there was that kind of table set, I'm gonna ask, hey, what's up? Like, who, who's coming over? And so it is that when you see a table here, that has that kind of lavish feast on it, and you see the Lord standing there who has prepared this table, you're gonna ask the question, hey, who's coming over? And what you come to find out is that the Lord has prepared this table. He is waiting to serve. He has prepared the food. Everything is there. And the guest of honor is you, is you. David says, you, Lord, prepare a table before me, that I am the guest of honor at this feast of the Lord. I am the one who has been invited in to sit. I'm the one who comes in and the Lord pulls out a chair and seats me and he scoots the chair in and he stands there with the towel ready to serve me. And all of a sudden, I'm overwhelmed by the fact that this lavish feast has been prepared for just me. I gotta say, I, I didn't see this coming. If I, if I found this kind of feast, I would be surprised to know that this was all prepared for me. David says, Lord, when I think about you, I think about the way in which you've prepared a table before me, for me. That you, Lord, are the one who has put this lavish feast together so that I might come and sit and feast. There is a lavish table there is an incredibly gracious host, and the guest of honor is you. But the next word I want you to see is that of, of oil. You anoint my head with oil. Now, we are so far removed from this culture that this thing right here is, is really hard for us to grasp. If you invited me over for a lavish feast and I was the guest of honor, and then you came up behind me and dumped oil on my head, I would not be encouraged or happy. I would not feel honored, I would not feel blessed. As a matter of fact, I would wonder if you got oil on the nice shirt that I wore to your dinner. Uh, this idea does not make us feel good. But the truth is, is that in Middle Eastern culture, as a sign of hospitality and a sign of honor, a guest would receive some oil mixed with perfume and it would be put on its head. 
not only was that symbolic in and of itself, but it made a pleasing aroma throughout the meal because the oil was mixed with perfume. And oil is a powerful symbol all throughout scripture. And so is anointing. Both of those words are significant. You anoint my head with oil. Now, anytime you see anointing in the Old Testament, it is a moment in which someone is being set apart. A king was anointed when he became king. A prophet was anointed. A priest was anointed. It was a way in which the Lord would say to someone, you have been chosen and you have been set apart by the Lord for this. I still like talking about the idea of the anointing of the Lord. I believe that God still puts anointing on us. I pray that the anointing of the Lord would be upon me as I preach, meaning that God would set me apart for this exact moment and that I would experience the fullness of his blessing and presence in this moment. So anointing and then oil. Oil is always a symbol of gladness. It's a symbol of the Lord's presence. It is a symbol of the blessing of the Lord and the calling of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. So what you have here is a picture of the Lord saying, I've chosen you. I've set you apart. And I am going to place upon you my favor and my blessing. I want the oil of the gladness of the Lord to be upon you. And so he anoints us, he chooses us, he sets us apart and puts upon us his blessing, his favor, and his gladness. We don't just sit at the table. We start to discern that we are chosen and loved and we are receiving at that moment his gladness and blessing and favor. The last word you need to see is cup. My cup overflows. I think that's just one more way of painting the picture of the whole scene here. That the Lord is standing there in a sense hovering over us as a host, making sure that anytime we run out of anything, he gives us more. The feeling that there will never at this table be a lack. We will never want something at this table that we don't find there. Our cup overflows. There's more than enough choice meat. There's more than enough choice wine. There is more than enough of his gladness and his favor and his blessing. There's just more and more and more. It almost points us to Ephesians chapter three, verses 20 and 21, where we come to discover that God has more blessing for us than we can ever, ever imagine. There is always more and more and more to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. This is a picture of abundance. And what David wants us to imagine in our minds as we picture Psalm 23, 5, which we have to do when we look at poetic literature like this, we've got to picture it. What he wants us to picture is this, is that you are at a lavish feast prepared by the Lord specifically for you. You are at a lavish feast prepared by the Lord specifically for you. And it is there as you sit down at that feast where your head is anointed with oil, where your cup overflows, listen to me, that in that moment, you feel welcomed, you feel cherished, you feel beloved, you feel honored, you feel the pleasure of the Lord. When you sit down at that table, 
and the Lord begins to serve you. And you realize that all of this feast has been made and prepared for you. It is at that moment when you sit and take a breath and begin to think about all that is happening in this moment that you come to the realization that you are in fact welcomed and cherished and beloved and honored by the Lord. It is in fact an overwhelming picture. It is the way in which David wants us to understand what happens when we come to sit with the Lord, what happens when we accept his invitation, like we read in John 6 at the beginning of our time together, that if you're hungry, come to me and feast. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And when you take the time to come and sit at the table of the Lord and you find yourselves in his presence, it is at that moment in which you start to understand just how honored and loved and cherished and welcome and at home you actually are. What an unbelievably beautiful picture. The simple point is that God is inviting you to rest and to revel in his lavish love. The table is a picture of the lavish love of the Lord. It's lavish because of the feast that is prepared. It is love in that he is using this moment to show you the depth of love he has for you. And he is asking you to come to the table, to come into his presence, and in that moment to rest and revel. By revel, I mean to rejoice and enjoy his presence. The point is that God is inviting you to rest and revel in his lavish love. And the reason you are able to do that is because the good shepherd has laid down his life for his sheep. Because Jesus has laid down his life for us, that he has taken the wrath of God upon himself so that our sins might be forgiven. And when we call upon the name of the Lord, our wrath is removed and we receive the favor and the blessing of the Lord. It is then, because we have trusted Jesus Christ, he brings us to the table and he says, sit here for a while, rest and revel in my lavish love. I wanna promise you, the more you meditate on that, the more you'll find yourself overwhelmed by just how lavish his love is. Now, this is almost a perfect picture. It's so close. It's almost a, a perfect picture. But all of a sudden, as we think about this picture, we realize that we've only talked about five words, and there's six. We've forgotten about the enemies. We forgot about the enemies. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let's leave it there. No, we can't leave it there. It's in the presence of my enemies. That little phrase there, in the presence of my enemies, means right in front of them. Now listen, they're not at the table. They didn't get invited to the table. They haven't trusted and followed the Lord. This table is reserved for those who've trusted Christ. But they're still there. They're around they're watching. You get this kind of feeling that they're waiting for you to get done eating so they can pounce on you again. Andrew and I were talking this week. We were talking about how both of us are like this, and I think most of us are like this, but, but I really feel this a lot just in my uh, calling here as a pastor, that if I have some issue of unresolved conflict, I have to deal with it. I, I'm not a good avoider. I, I'm not a good at putting something away. 
I don't like to stew on things. So if something's out there, I wanna just go after it, deal with it, let's talk about it, let's get it out in the open, let's be done with it. The reason is, is because if there's something like there, that out there, I can't rest. I just can't rest. So the reason this came up is this week I came home and there was something eating at me and I just told Andrea, hey, I gotta go outside. I gotta make a couple of phone calls. There's something I need to deal with. I went out, I made the phone calls and I felt better. But if I would not have made the phone calls, I would have stewed on it all evening. The reason I tell you that is I have to believe that it's just a little bit difficult resting and reveling at the dinner when you know the enemies are waiting. And so all of a sudden we take this picture of this lavish feast and how welcomed and loved we feel and then we're reminded that outside of the meal are enemies that are waiting, we're eating in their presence. You say, why in the world would David take this beautiful moment and add the presence of enemies? Here's the reason. It's because David has written Psalm 23 to show us what it looks like to trust and follow Jesus in this life. He is using Psalm 23 to give us, listen, this is so important, to give us a realistic and honest picture of life in this world with Jesus. Is it a good life? Yes, he leads us in the right path. It's the best of all possible lives in a broken world. Do we experience his rest and his refreshment? Does he restore our soul? Does he make us feel blessed and honored and cherished and loved the more we spend time with him? Yes, a thousand times, yes. But are there still enemies? Yes, as long as we live in this world, until the Lord chooses to take us home, we will feast with the Lord, we will rejoice and revel in his presence and also in the presence of enemies. What are, what are those enemies? Well, I think for David, they're actual, real, live enemies. The reason I think that is because of 2 Samuel 17. I'm not gonna read this, uh, write that down and read it later. It would be a helpful story for you. I really believe he wrote, David wrote Psalm 23, five with this in mind in 2 Samuel 17. David is running from his son Absalom because Absalom has decided to take the throne from David. There's some massive family dysfunction there and David is on the run. And all of these soldiers are after him and David has his little band of men. And while David is on the run with his enemies right behind him, he comes to a city. And when he comes to the city, he finds the most surprising thing. He finds that there in the city are beds prepared for them. He finds that there is water and wheat and barley. He finds that there are flour and beans and honey and cheese. And the text just keeps saying all of the things that are there. There's not there a sack lunch. Hey, David, take a lunch and keep running. There's not there just a sandwich. Hey, take a sandwich, but keep moving. David walks into a city and he finds this incredible meal. Stuff that you're not supposed to eat on the run. You don't eat honey on the run. You gotta sit to eat honey. And what happened is, is while David was in the presence of his enemies, the Lord made him a feast. Just to remind him, David, I know the enemies are there, but I also want you to be reminded that I'm here and I know what you need. I know how you're feeling. I know that like Elijah right now, even in the midst of all of your greatest moments, David, I know that you're scared and you're running. You feel a little bit despair. You might feel completely and deeply insecure in this moment. So in the presence of your enemies, why don't you just stop and have something to eat? Let me minister to you for a while. Let me love on you for a moment. 
You see, the same thing that the Lord did for Elijah, the Lord has done for David, and it's the same thing he wants to do for you. I think the best way to understand the enemies in Psalm 23, five for us, listen to this, please listen to this. Your enemies are anything that keep you from the table. Your enemies are anything that keep you from the table. The Lord is inviting you to the table. He wants you to feast, but we have an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy you. The last thing he wants you to do is find who you really are to have all of your fear removed, to feel welcomed and cherished and loved into the family by sitting at the table so he will do anything he can to keep you from the table. Your enemies are things like sin, where because of your sin, you don't feel worthy to sit at the table. Lord, I know you've invited me to the table, but I'm such an idiot. I've done so many dumb things this week when the reality is it's true, you're an idiot and you've done dumb things this week, but all of those things have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So even as being an idiot, you are a cherished, loved child of God. And he says, yes, you've done dumb things, but you know Jesus died to cover those dumb things so that you could sit at the table? So ask forgiveness and then come to the table. Humble yourself and sit. The enemies are idols. All of the things we love more than we love the Lord. So we have all of these things we're spending incredible amounts of time on, but we never stop to sit with the Lord. The enemies are distractions. All of the things that keep us so busy that we don't ever sit with the Lord. Sometimes our enemy, listen, is just old-fashioned laziness. Well, you got time to sit at the table. you just rather do something else. And sometimes it's the devil. But you need to know this. As long as you live in this life and you are walking the path of righteousness, there are gonna be a thousand things trying to keep you from sitting at the table where you will feel fully welcomed and cherished and loved by the Lord. And your responsibility is to fight off those enemies by the power of the Holy Spirit, and even when you don't feel like it, or even when you don't feel worthy to do it, you must sit at the table in the presence of the Lord, open this book, and let the Lord minister to you. Now for some of you, this is gonna feel way too emotional and way too touchy-feely, but let me just say it to you. God wants you to understand what it's like to experience intimacy with him where you sit for a moment and he just lavishes you with his love. And when you sit and the Lord serves you and ministers to you and he gives you the truths from his word and you feast upon the bread of life and you drink from the well of living water, what happens is all of those fears and all of those anxieties and all of those insecurities start to go away. He has prepared a table for you. He is inviting you to sit, but you must go past the enemies and sit for a while at the table of the Lord and let him love on you. Please, please don't miss the moment-by-moment invitation to be with the Lord. Make it a priority. And just come to discover what it feels like to be cherished and loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning.